morning, everybody. Good to see you. Real good to see you. You know, uh, God's so good. He's really good. He's so faithful to us. You know, I was thinking uh, throughout this week as I was praying for everybody at church here and everything, just about how cool it is to be able to be connected to the body, um, to be connected to a local church. And, um, you know, not all of us uh, get to constantly hang out with each other. Life is pretty busy, you know, and there's a lot going on in all of our lives. But the fact that there are others who are following Christ, there are others who we know are in pursuit, and there's moments where there's real overlap, and when there's a deep need, there's others who are there. Um, it's, a, it's a good thing. So, uh, you know, just praise God for this place and for, uh, for the church, and especially for his grace in our lives. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 today. Now, if you know anything about 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know that this is quite possibly the most loved chapter of Scripture in the entire New Testament. That, uh, that there is probably very, very few chapters of Scripture that are quoted as much as 1 Corinthians 13 in the New Testament. Uh, it, there's, there's one chapter in the Old Testament that might be quoted as much or more than 1 Corinthians 13, and that's the 23rd Psalm. And uh, the 23rd Psalm gets quoted at just about every funeral. And 1 Corinthians 13 gets quoted at just about every wedding, or lots of weddings, anyway. And, uh, you know, this is an incredible, an incredible chapter of Scripture. Uh, it's phenomenal. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous piece of art. It's, uh, it speaks to the, to the deepest and most profound parts of our lives. And so when we read this chapter, it does stuff to us, you know? It grabs a hold of us. And there's, there, there's something very special about that. Now, believe it or not, we've been in Corinthians this series in 1 Corinthians for seven months. Seven months in one series. That's like, for me, that's like, you know, when someone beats a world record, but they don't just beat a world record, they like blow it out of the water. Like seven months, a long series. We've been in it for a long time. And we are getting to a climax of 1 Corinthians here. And we're right at the peak of it. And um, throughout those seven months, one of the things that we've, we've had to remember is that we got to keep our eye on the, the objective of this series. The objective of this series hasn't been to find interesting verses in 1 Corinthians that inform our theology or our doctrine or our lifestyle and to exegete each of those interesting passages. There's so many cool verses all throughout 1 Corinthians, but we didn't have time, even with seven months of study, to go into deep dives on any of those verses. Because each week we're dealing with either a huge chunk of a chapter or a whole chapter. And the reason that we were doing that is because it's really easy to lose the forest through the trees, right? That, you know, when you're sitting in the forest, you can't see the big picture because of all the trees in the, in the way. And sometimes what happens in teaching around the scriptures is we know this verse and we learn all about this verse and we learn this verse. And our, our faith gets made up of this verse plus this verse plus this verse. And we lose the story. And we lose the big picture of what's going on. And our faith ends up becoming a bunch of doctrines and a bunch of rules and a bunch of things to do instead of being a relationship with God. And the book is written as a story in a relationship. And so what we've been trying to do is hear the story, the story of the church of Corinth and how God was speaking into the church of Corinth through Paul. And what's the big picture of this letter and what's it all about? And so there's, it's been very tempting for me a couple of times when we blew past a chapter that had a verse in it that I was like, oh, I'd love to just hang out and dig into that verse 
and talk about, you know, the role of men and women or to talk about marriage and divorce or to talk about uh, intricacies of how we go after wisdom and all of those things that are all in there. But we've had to stay a little broader, you know, and that's okay because it's been really good to see the picture, the story of, of this church of Corinth and how church works in a real world, you know. Similarly, 1 Corinthians 13, this chapter that is so beloved, it's easy to lose context for it. Now, how would we lose context for a a chapter that's so central as this one? This is the way it works. It's kind of like if you're watching, uh, say you're watching a film that had best cinematography, won best cinematography that year. Okay, so it's just absolutely gorgeous scenery, you know, and the light and everything's amazing. And, and as you're watching this film, there's a freeze frame. Okay, you push pause on the DVD, you know, and it just freezes there on your Blu-ray player. It can't be just the DVD because if, you, if you're going to see the beauty of, of this cinematography, this photography, you have to, it has to be a Blu-ray player, you know, high definition, you know, on a great, and you, and you push pause on it. Even better, you're in the theater and they, and they just pause it. And, and here on the screen is this gorgeous picture. Like it's probably the best scenery in the whole film that won, uh, you know, that won uh, best cinematography. So it's just this gorgeous picture. And you could sit there and stare at that picture and get complete enjoyment of that picture. You could hang it on your wall and you could love that picture and it could speak to you profoundly because it's art. But the thing is, is that that piece of art is still part of a motion picture. You know, it started, it's part of something that's bigger. And that motion picture isn't just about the cool scenery. That motion picture is actually about the plot. It's about the story. And when it comes to 1 Corinthians 13, we can hold this chapter as a piece of art all on its own. And we should. And we could do a series, a sermon series on just this chapter because it speaks so profoundly about love. And maybe we will. And that would be awesome. But until we see it in context... Until we see the movie, then we really need to not just freeze frame and see this thing as its own thing. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? And so when it comes to understanding 1 Corinthians, and and we're about to read the chapter, but I want you to remember the context in which it's being spoken into. I want you to remember the church who Paul is speaking this to. I want you to remember the city who he's talking to. You remember this city is the boom town, that on both sides, it's a port town, that if you have any ingenuity and any effort, you can make money hand over fist in this town because the worlds collide in this town and everyone's making money and it is just flying around. And in the midst of that, is the deepest levels of immorality that we might know of in, in society. You know, it's like I honestly believe that Corinth probably put Sodom and Gomorrah to shame. There's a, the, the, the ugliness that was taking place, the nastiness that was taking place in this town. Just horrible, horrible. And in the midst of that, God miraculously births a church. And then the church, there's all sorts of miraculous things that happen with the church. But then once the church is established, they struggle because they're still in that culture. They're still in that world. And so the mindset, even though they might not quite do everything the way that culture does, it infiltrates their minds and it shapes how they do church. And they're still independent people and self-seeking people and all of that. And, And you end up seeing the church get fractured. And you see this brand and this brand and this kind of person and the people who are fans of this preacher versus that preacher. And you see that there's people who are trying to puff their chest out and be all wise and smart. And then you have these, this group of guys who, is still, who are still engaging in the immorality that was completely and totally inappropriate as people of Christ and no one's holding them accountable. 
And then on top of that, you have this group of women, this eschatological women who think that they've already experienced the resurrection and they're the holy rollers and they're the ones who speak in tongues and they're the ones who have this ability to put off uber spirituality and they separate themselves from everyone else, even their husbands, and they won't engage in any sort of appropriate activity because they're kind of like above now, you know? And this is the context in which Paul starts to say, man, it's not about our wisdom. It's about his wisdom. It's not about our religiosity. It's about his sacrifice on the cross. It's not about our own identities and the stuff that we can do. It's about the body of Christ and being a part of it and recognizing that we've died and only he lives and how can we serve him. And all this is the stuff that he's been saying. And then he gets to chapter 13. And at the very end of chapter 12, at the very, very end of chapter 12, there was one phrase that we left off last week that we didn't say. And I said, because it'll be for, it goes with the next chapter. And this is it. And I don't even have this one on the screen, okay? It just says this at uh, verse 31. It says, and now I will show you the most excellent way. After all the stuff that he's deconstructed that they're doing inappropriately, what he says now is, now I'm going to model for you what it's actually all about. This reminds me of Jesus in John chapter 13 when he knows that all authority has been given to him and that he's going to return to his father and he's about to face the cross. And this is what it says in John chapter 13. It says, so he then showed them the full extent of his love. When you hear that Jesus is about to show the full extent of his love, your ears should go like a dog, you know, that hears something like what? Jesus is about to show the full extent of his love. And that's what it says. And then the next picture, it says, so he took off his outer garment and he knelt down and he washed their feet. (laughs) Those who were about to betray him, deny him, leave him, abandon him, and he washes their feet. He shows them the full extent of his love. And in the way that that phrase is supposed to grab a hold of us so we hear how central that story is, in the same way in this letter, when Paul says, I will now show you the most excellent way. Something should happen in our spirits. Something should happen that just snaps into line and draws into attention and says, I'm not going to let a word of this drop without penetrating my life. And that's what Paul wants them to see. That out of all the things in this crazy culture, that he wants them to hear this. And with that said, we need to hear it as well. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Please stand with me in honor of God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. 
it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. And where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. May God add rich blessings as his word is read and spoken into our lives. You can have a seat. You hear what Paul is doing as he takes the culture of Corinth and he speaks deeply into it the most excellent way. And now, that culture of Corinth, we move 2,000 years forward and we come here to the culture of America. And is that passage any less relevant? Is it any less necessary? I want to take a peek for just a second at the culture of America in a video that we have prepared. I am my car. I am my clothes. I am my bank account. I am my house. I obey my thirst. I have it my way. I just do it. I deserve a break today. I double my pleasure, double my fun. I live the high life because I'm worth it. I'm looking out for number one. I wait for nothing. I have a million choices. I get what I want. I do what's best for me. I spend my time where I want to spend it. No one wastes it but me. I have the world at my fingertips. If it doesn't work, I'll throw it out and get a new one. If I'm uncomfortable, I leave. There's another place just down the street. If I'm unhappy, I'm missing something. I find it. I buy it. If I want it, I get it. I accumulate. I collect. I acquire. I take. I use. I devour. I consume. I am not the center of the universe, but I'm the center of mine. I want to know what's in it for me. I want to know what I get out of it. I'm here to find happiness. I live for comfort. I exist to be served. The world exists to serve me. I am the customer. The customer is king. I am king. So can you feel the contrast of reading 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and then watching that video? Can you feel it? I'm looking for an answer. Yeah, I can feel it. I mean, I can feel the tension there. And this is the tension that exists when Christ comes to earth. That's what it is. When Jesus is present among humans, that's the contrast. This is the contrast of love in the midst of a world of complete and total utter selfishness. Every now and then something happens in our world some sort of tragedy that causes us, even if it's just for a second, to stop and think about our lives and about our world and whether or not it all makes sense. Sometimes if the tragedy is big enough, we might even stop for a week or two to really evaluate 
Most of the time, it's just for a little bit. This week, I was, earlier in the week, I watched a special edition uh, 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 on Hurricane Sandy on NBC, uh, hosted by Brian Williams. And there was this one image, this one piece of footage that just gripped me, and it's a stunning image that I can't let go of. It's still just holding on to me. And what was even more is what it is that, that Brian Williams was saying as the image was going. And the image was, and you've seen these images, the images of, of water flowing like rivers down the streets of lower Manhattan, just pouring down the streets. And as these rivers flow all through lower Manhattan, it, it, the, the image was almost as if they all found their way to this drain, this giant hole right down there in lower Manhattan and right down there in the hearts of America known as Ground Zero. And this water pours down like waterfalls into Ground Zero. And as the footage is just sitting there watching the water pour in, I hear Brian Williams saying something to the effect of, it's hard not to think. It's hard not to remember. This picture right here of the last time that we in America and we in New York City realized that we are not nearly as in control as we think we are. I believe that when we read 1 Corinthians 13, in weddings, what we do is we take a still frame of a motion picture and it looks so beautiful. But I believe that when we see this passage in context and we let the tape roll and we look at who we are and we look at America and we look at Corinth and we hear 1 Corinthians, the 1 Corinthians 13 stands out like a spiritual ground zero in our lives. That there's this gaping hole, this massive abyss among the skyscrapers of our achievements, among the towers to our identities and the monuments of our pride. There is this gaping, gigantic hole in the middle of it that says there is a foundation here that was designed for deep, abiding, unfailing, selfless love that is deeply missing. And it's like a drain that there's never enough and it just pours down in and we say, what happened? Where'd it go? What happened to our society? How is it that we can have these incredible towers and all of this technology and we can have so much psychology that understands everything about everyone and we're so advanced and yet in the middle of it, when I read 1 Corinthians 13, I don't always get just the oozy feeling of, oh, love is so wonderful. I get confronted with the stark reality of the emptiness of humanity because of the lack of love in our lives. And that's exactly what Paul was doing in 1 Corinthians 13. He shows them all the things and how it's all messed up. And he says, but now I'm going to show you the way it was supposed to be. This is the way it's supposed to look. And he goes into graphic, beautiful, horrific detail about what's missing in the church of Corinth. And I believe in what's missing in our lives and in our culture and in my life. All the time. 1 Corinthians 13. We desperately 
need love. We desperately, desperately need Jesus. Join me in prayer. God, we're, we're here deep into this message and we've waited till now to pray because this is the moment when we realize we just need you. We need you. This is the moment in this message where we just got to stop and say, it's not about knowledge. It's not about anything else. You know, it's not about our how-to. It's not about our gifts. We can't fix our problems. We need you. Please be with us today. Please be with us in our lives. Please be with us for the, the last few minutes here as we pick apart a couple verses. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul does three things in 1 Corinthians 13. He shows three things about love. First, in the first three verses, he shows the necessity of love. You know that we just got done talking about the spiritual gifts. And in, in 1 Corinthians 12, he was talking about the spiritual gifts. And when we think about spiritual gifts, some of you were just sitting in the, in the spiritual gifts Sunday school class as we were talking about that. If you, if you haven't, uh, didn't join that this week, I'd really encourage you to join it. It speaks deeply to uh, how we function as a body. But as Paul was talking in 1 Corinthians 12 about these spiritual gifts, we remember that the issue was, there's a couple issues. One was that there was the people who, because of the spiritual manifestation stuff, that was happening because there was these spiritual things that were happening. They were taking pride and identity in it. They thought it was special. They thought that they knew they were spiritually mature if these spiritual things were taking place. And it was like, if I could accomplish this or if I could have this spiritual experience or if I could put off this kind of spirituality, then I know that I'm good with God and that I'm, you know, somewhere on the scale, I'm doing pretty well, you know? And this is what Paul says when it comes to to the spiritual gifts, for solving problems. You know, spiritual gifts solve problems. Spiritual gifts give us experiences. And this is what Paul says in the first three verses. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. You know what that means? It means that if I'm speaking with my mouth in profound language that God gives me, if I'm speaking fluently angel, (laughs) if I can speak angel fluently, You know what that means? Jack squat unless I love the person next to me. That's what it means. And there's division that happens over wonderful gifting and all of that. But he, this is what it is. It's gong, gong, who cares about the religious noise? Unless it actually loves, unless it actually helps. The last thing we need is more religious noise. We don't need religious noise. That stuff adds to the pain. It doesn't help the problem. It's a resounding gong. It doesn't speak truth into our lives. It's crazy angel gibberish that doesn't help me. I need love. We need love. And then he talks about even better gifts. And he says, what if you have the faith to move a mountain? (laughs) That's pretty slick. You know, if I have the faith to move a mountain and what if I can prophesy, what if I can see the truth that no one else can and I can bring light to people so they can understand God and they can understand themselves and they can understand what's going on in the world around them. And what if I have insight into what we need in the election on Tuesday? And what if I have insight into what it is that happens in the hurricane and how God allows those kind of things to happen? And what if we can speak that kind of truth so deeply and so profoundly that people will hang on to everything 
every single word that is spoken? And what if it manifests in power to the place where we can actually change the landscape of our world? What if we have power that can move not just shore houses, but it can move mountains? We have nothing. As a matter of fact, what it says is we are nothing if we don't have love. So I can find my identity and what I know and what I can speak, what I can see, what I can do, what I can accomplish. But if it is not about loving another person, then I actually am nothing. Why? Because Christ is love. All others are dead. Only one has risen. Only one is alive. The only life is found in Jesus. And if I am not living in Jesus, then I am not alive. I am nothing. And if there is not love in my life, then Christ is not in my life. So it doesn't matter what I accomplish. It doesn't matter what I can do or what I can see. Love reveals something. Everything else reveals nothing. But then there's the kicker. This is the one, this is, the, this is where it gets real. When he says, if I give everything I have to the poor, and I surrender my body to the flames. You know, isn't that what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do? After he had obeyed all the commands and done everything that God told him to do, he said, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I did that. What do I need to have eternal life? You're supposed to do that. You know the commands. I did that. I did that. I did that. And then Jesus just stops him, and he's like, okay. Then sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Everything. All of it. Like eBay the stuff you already have, and liquidate your account, and and sell it all. Get rid of every ounce of it and give it to the poor and you will have eternal life. And then come follow me. You know, that's what he said. Get get rid of all of it and then come follow me. And what does the rich young ruler do? He hangs his head and he turns around and he walks away. What would happen if he sold everything he had and gave it to the poor? According to Paul, nothing would have happened. Because what if you sell everything you have and you give it to the poor and you surrender your body to the flames, but you have not love, then you have gained nothing, especially not eternal life, which is what he was asking for. And Jesus said, give it all up and come and follow me. And if I give everything I have to the poor and I spend myself and I am like super religious and I do everything the way I can and I'm so zealous that I would give up my life, I would fly a plane into a tower. (laughs) But I have not love. I've gained nothing. I've made no headway in life because the kingdom of God is built on love. And if it's not actually about love, if it's still about me, then it doesn't matter how impressive it is. It doesn't matter how sacrificial it is. It doesn't matter how religious it is. It doesn't even matter how right it is. All that matters is whether or not it is actually done in love. That's the only thing that matters. We can fix problems all day long, but it doesn't actually make any headway unless we're fixing the real problem. Prophecy It can fix problems. Faith, it can fix problems. Giving to the poor, it can fix problems. But it can't satisfy the deep need, the ground zero in humanity, which is the vacancy of love. And what kind of love are we talking about? 
kind of love is this really talking about? That's where Paul goes from here. He realizes that when he lays out just how necessary love is, then he better follow that up by defining for us what love actually is. So he moves from the necessity of love to the nature of love in chapter, in verse four here. And he really breaks it down for us. I mean, this is where, this is, this is, I can't, this is when I read this, this is the ground zero stuff right here. This is when he describes love. When we be, it's defined right in front of us. And I want you to think about that video, of, that video of America. Think about the, the Corinth and what's going on in that, in that town. And then listen. He says love is patient. Is there anything about that video that revealed patience? Is there anything about our culture that reveals patience? I love that he starts with patience. I love that he starts there. Some of you were around a long time ago, a couple years ago, we had a message here on God being a gourmet chef and not a fast food burger flipper. And then if we want to be, if we want to see God do his best work in our lives, that we need to have endurance and patience. We need to trust him. Our world, we don't do patience. We don't do patience. I got a new computer two months ago month and a half ago, two months ago, something like that. That The day that I got it, at least the week that I got it, it was, the, it was a new model that got released. Two weeks ago, it was the old model. That's in two months. In two months, the model got replaced. Yeah. Patience is not what our culture is built on. It's built on efficiency instead of patience. Efficiency isn't love. Patience is love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Well, we're like, yeah, of course love is kind. You know? Of course love's kind. That makes sense to me. You know, love's kind. It's like you're, you're going to be nice to me because you love me. It doesn't say love is nice. It says love is kind. So if I'm sitting up here and i got a boogie hanging out of my nose, are you going to tell me about it or not? That's kind. Kind is to tell me. If my fly's down, you're going to let me know, Right? That's kind, so I'm not making a fool of myself. (laughs) What if my brother or sister's full of sin? Am I being kind? Or do I just kind of walk past them day in and day out? Boogies hanging out of their nose and whatever, you know? I can't talk to them because I got my own stuff going on, you know? That's about me. That's not about them. You know? Jesus' love It takes tables in the temple and it throws them on the ground. It stands in the face of the religious leaders and says, you're a whitewashed sepulcher. On the outside, you're all shiny and clean. And on the inside, there's nothing there except death. It's Jesus who speaks to his own followers and his best friends who says to him, hey man, quit arguing about who's going to be on top. It's the last who become first. You're missing the point. Love is kindness. And kindness isn't niceness. Kindness is doing what people need, helping them where they really need it. And usually that isn't the thing that makes us or them feel great initially. It takes sacrifice. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is content. How about that one? Content. It doesn't envy others. 
It's content. That whole video is built on the other thing, right? The lack of contentment. Consumerism is built on the lack of contentment. It's not self-seeking. It's not proud. It's not proud that nothing that I do actually comes back to reflect who I am. It goes on and on. I want to I, I pick out another one. I can't, we can't, this is where we should do a series. We could do a series on each one of these things, you know. Um, we could do a, 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 a sermon on each one of these. Let's talk about forgiving. Keeps no record of wrong. No, right? No record. No record of wrong. Think about that. I want to I do something with this. Remember, we, it just came off of, of talking about the body of Christ. And in Ephesians, when it talks about the body of Christ, it talks about the ligaments that hold together the body of Christ. And you remember, if one of us is the hand and one of us is the arm, connecting my hand to my arm is a joint. And in that joint is ligaments. And the scriptures speak of the joints and the ligaments that hold us together in the body of Christ and keep us connected to the central nervous system, which ultimately leads to the head who is Jesus. Jesus is the head, and he works through the central nervous system, through his Holy Spirit, to connect to each part of the body, which is all of us, and we are joined and held together by every supporting joint and ligament, and that joint and those ligaments are the relationships between you and I. And what happens when a joint experiences severe trauma? It produces scar tissue. And I don't know if any of you have ever had scar tissue issues in your joints, but I had knee surgery. And I had three knee surgeries. And the second two were because in the fir- after response to the first knee surgery, I had massive scar tissue. And even though they had fixed the initial problem, now there was all this scar tissue. And what happened is if, if this is the knee here, then, then right here it produced all this scar tissue that was like a big bubble. And now the ligament that was supposed to be connecting this part to this part all of a sudden had to go out and over all this ligament. And it wouldn't work my leg eventually froze up and I couldn't bend it anymore. So they had to go back in and cut out all the scar tissue. There's scar tissue that exists in the joints between you and I. And it's called unforgiven pain. It's called bitterness. And it keeps the relationship from functioning well. That ligament, it can't move right because I'm still holding on to junk that happened back here. And the only one who can let it go is me. And the only way it can be let go is love. And love requires forgiveness. And no one else can control the forgiveness except me. And if the body will function well, it'll function because the ligaments work. And the only way the ligaments work is when we keep no record of wrong. And the only way that happens is if love is present. True love. Deep love. I'd love to go on more and more. I mean, there's hopefulness and there's endurance and there's all those things. Love never quits. When I want to get depressed because things aren't working for me, no, I hope and I still see the best and I'm still moving forward and I persevere and I endure and I don't mope and all of that. Love just rises up. It covers a multitude of sins. It overwhelms it. It floods over it. Love is everything and this kind of love at its core This kind of love at its core is something different than what we typically think of as love. You know, there's a whole bunch of words in the Greek for love, but we'll focus on two of them real quickly here. One is phileo, and you know about phileo, right? You know about that one. Philadelphia, you know about that one. Delphia means city, and phileo means love, which is why we're called the city of brotherly love, because brotherly love is what phileo is. 
brotherly love. It means it's kind of a contract between two people who really care about each other. Most marriages in America are built on phileo love, okay? And what that means is it's two people, and it's also built on the other forms of love, like eros, which, you know, is other forms of, like, romantic love, exotic love, all of those things. And, and then there's phileo love, which is the, the, the contract love. That, that means this. It means that when I get to the red light, I'll stop so that the people with the green light can go. When I get to the yield sign, I'll calm down so that other people can go. It's the system that we have that helps us respect one another because we realize that if I always do it my way, right when, the way I want it right now, it's not going to work. Society's not going to function. And so the highest form of phileo love is this thing that you hear all the time right now called pay it forward, right? You know about pay it forward which says, like, if I will do a good deed for the person next to me, then they'll do a good deed for the person next to them, and so on and so forth, and eventually it'll come back to me like a boomerang, and I will receive the love that I need because society will be loving. And that's the idea of phileo love, and that's the idea of contractual love. And it's a very, very important kind of love, a deeply important kind of love, phileo love is, that we need to learn to respect one another and and deal appropriately with each other. However... Agape love, this love that's spoken of in this chapter, is absolutely nothing like it. It's a completely and totally different ballgame. Truly. Because agape love, there's another word. Philadelphia comes from phileo. There's a word in our society that we use sometimes that derives its roots from the word agape. You know what it is? Unconditional is what, it, what uh, agape love is, but the word that's deriven, derived from agape is the word agony. Agony. Just look. I mean, just look. It makes sense, doesn't it? Agony. You see, here's the deal with agape love. Well, phileo love is that I'll scratch your back and you'll scratch my back. Agape love is I'm going to scratch your back when it itches, Period. And I don't ever expect anything to come back. There's no boomerang in this thing. See, the difference between agape love and phileo love, the difference between man's like greatest abilities in phileo love versus God's abilities in agape love, the difference is, is this is an unending fountain that comes out of me without ever expecting anything in return. It's funny. Agape love is not only a love that is referred to in the scriptures by God, or or about God, it's actually referred to about men with how much they crave evil. (laughs) That they agape love evil. That they will give without ever expecting anything truly in return to evil just because they love it so much, you know? And he says true love, true agape love is a fountain, not a drain. That's the difference between phileo and agape. It's the difference between our culture and the culture of God. The culture of God is He is a wellspring. He is a fountain. And it just keeps coming. And it never quits. And out of Him comes goodness and blessing and grace and care and protection and trust and patience and faithfulness. And it just keeps coming and coming and coming without ever expecting anything in return. Too often we we think that God's love for us is conditional. We know it's not, but we think it is. We think God will be okay with me if I do such and such, and then he'll give me the reward. God doesn't do contracts. He fulfilled every contract on the cross. It's all done. There are no contracts. All there is is this. 
I love you. You know? That's it. I love you. C.S. Lewis and many others who have come to their deathbed have been asked the question, what's the most profound thought that you ever thought in your life? And C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest authors of the modern era, said this, most profound thought he's ever thought in his entire life is Jesus loves me. Jesus loves me. The most profound thought. Love, agape, the wellspring. And as I look and hear that, I, that concept of love being something that never expects something. It's not pay it forward and it'll come back around to me. It's that I understand this is just agony in the best sense of the word. That I just give myself without ever expecting anything in return. Just giving, giving, giving. And when I think of that kind of love, that's when I understand that this text is ground zero. That's when I look at this thing and I say, I don't, I don't have that. I mean, let's just be clear. I do not have that. I have limits to how much I can give before I start feeling spent, you know? I have limits to what it is that I expect in return at times. And I always hope that I'll give a little more than I'll get, you know, and that type of thing. But let's, let's be real. Agape love, let's just be honest with ourselves for a second and stare at this passage for what it is. It's the ground zero of humanity. It's that we don't possess it. We don't live in it. Well, he goes from the, the necessity of love to the nature of love. And then when he goes from the nature of love, he moves on and he talks about the never ending, the longevity of love. And he says that it's the thing that never ends. And, and this is really cool what he does in the last few verses here. He says, you know, these gifts that we're talking about, these achievements that we go after, this stuff that we do, it's, it's going to come to an end. And it doesn't last. And it's hard for us to understand this at first because the things that he's talking about, when he's talking about these spiritual gifts and everything, they're great things. They're far better than just, you know, going and having a McDonald's burger or throwing my life away to, to drink and to do whatever and get, you know, just blow my life to the next indulgence I can. Like, this is much better, right? We're talking about prophecy and tongues or whatever. You know, we're talking about deep spirit. And he says, this is what he says. He says, they're all going to fade. I love it because the picture is he's like, the tongues will be stilled. And why will the tongues be stilled? Well, because we're speaking in angel language, right? And someday, we're going to be with the angels. So who needs to, like, duh. Everyone's going to speak fluent angel at that point, you know? And it's like, tongues aren't going to matter someday, you know? You don't have to speak in heavenly tongue when everyone speaks in heavenly tongue, or everyone's going to speak in heavenly tongue, or everyone's just going to understand. But in heaven, being able to speak the heavenly language isn't the big deal anymore, you know? That's commonplace, when it comes to prophecy, which is the great gift, you know, that's the great gift. We're going to, in, in the next chapter, chapter 14, he'll come back to gifts again and he'll contrast prophecy and tongues and talk about how much cooler prophecy is than tongues. And the reason is because with prophecy, what happens, see, there's this darkness. He says, we live in a dim world. We look, and I love this one. He says, we look at ourselves in a mirror, or we look at ourselves as though in a mirror. And you're like, well, that's a pretty good reflection, right? Like, that's because it's lost in translation, because their mirrors were terrible. You know, they had these like bent up piece of copper that they shine real good to try to get. And it's like this distorted image of themselves that they can't really get a great picture. We look in our mirror, we're like, yeah, that's pretty much what I look like, I'm pretty sure. You know, and it's different. For them, it was this distorted image of themselves. 
And he says, it's like you turn the lights down and it's real dim in here and you're still trying to see what's there. It's like that image where it's all kind of like weird, but I'm still trying to see myself. And he said, what prophecy does is it sees better. It helps us to see better. It's when we don't have a great picture of God, the gift of prophecy is someone coming in and revealing the truth about God in a way that speaks to my life. And I'm like, whoa, I didn't realize God was like that. I didn't realize the scripture said it like that. I didn't realize that's what was going on in my life. I didn't realize that some of the stuff that was happening here wasn't just natural, that there was spiritual stuff underneath of it. I didn't realize that the reason I did that was because of this. And that's all about prophecy. But what, what, what happens is, is he says, prophecy, it's going to fade away. Why is it going to fade away? Because someday we're going to see face to face. And there will be no dim lights anymore. There will be the light of Christ. And there will no, the, the mirrors, they're gone. We won't even be looking at the mirrors. We're looking face to face at Jesus. And what it says is, and you, in that, in that moment, we will know as we are fully known. As even now we are fully known. In the way that God knows every ounce of who I am right now, someday I will know everything about God. What? And in that moment, prophecy prophecy is based on the dimness prophecy is based on the messed up image of helping to clear it out so i can see it someday i will see it and prophecy will be useless and tongues won't matter and all of my goodness is completely and totally irrelevant and the poor will no longer exist and my charity and my goodness all of those things they won't matter the only thing that remains the only thing that has the deep longevity, the one that is always there, that is consistent, that will hold on forever, is love. So what are we going to invest into? You know? is love. Now here's the issue, of course, is that it's not actually the only thing that lasts for the long haul. There's three things. And this is where he ends. This is the last verse. He says, but these three remain, faith and hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. Now, what's the deal with the faith thing here? Because didn't he earlier say, if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, it's worth nothing? And so, like, that was one of the things he was contrasting. But remember, he just came out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where he was talking about a gift of faith, which is, mean, that ability to, like, supernaturally believe in something when I wouldn't believe in it. This is like Moses taking his staff and stabbing it into the water and watching the Red Sea part. Okay, that's, that's a supernatural kind of faith in a moment. But this kind of faith that he's talking about here in the end that remains, this isn't about being able to achieve something great through faith. This is about my relational situation with God. Faith is dependence on God. There's three things that remain. Faith, that's my dependence on God. Hope is my belief in what he says will become reality. And love is that I care more about him than me. Okay? Those three remain, and the greatest is love. Now, listen. Why is that so important? The reason that's really, really important is because of this. Love, it only has power in one venue. Let me explain what I mean. There's an absolute endless variety of movies that are filmed about love right? It's like in almost every movie, there's some sort of love thing going on. When it comes to literature, it's obviously the greatest subject that uh, has inspired all the literature throughout history is the, the, the subject of love. When it comes to songs, 
I mean, come on. The songs are built on love, right? Everything is all about love. But we realize that those songs and that literature and those movies, they have no power. There's no power in them. We can talk about love and we can describe love and we can sing about love. We can wax eloquent about love. We can even really understand love. But the miracle of love, the power of love only exists in its presence, in its working, in its functioning. Love is not special if it's just an idea. Love isn't profound if it's just something that we understand. If it's just a concept, it doesn't matter. Love only matters when it happens, when it's in action. And the problem, of course, is that we can't do it. It's our ground zero. And so here's where faith comes in. And this is our dependence on Jesus. This is where we find ourselves. We can be lovers, true agape lovers, if we are in Christ. There's this God designed this brilliant foolproof plan as a, as a, a litmus test for us about our relationship with him, uh, an indicator about whether or not we are in God. And the equation goes something like this. You will seek him and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart. He stands at the door and he knocks. If anyone will let him in, he will come in and he will sup with them. If we want Jesus to be king of our lives, if we want to know Christ and be absorbed in Christ, if I want my life to not be mine but want it to be Christ, that can happen like that. It can happen like that because he's already taken care of what needs to be taken care of on the cross. He's paid the price, but I have to want it and I have to open myself to it. And if I do that, then Christ can come in and live with me. All right? That's that's A plus B. If Christ died on the cross. He can be with me. If I want him to be with me and I'll receive him as my Savior and Lord, then he will be my Savior and Lord. That's A plus B, okay? Now, here's the next step. Jesus, in that chapter 13 of uh, John, when he washed the disciples' feet and showed them the extent of his love, after that whole supper, he says this. This is what he says. Now, I want to give you another command. I want you to love. I'm going to give you a new command, that you love one another the way that I have loved you. In the way that I have loved you, so also you should love one another. And then he says this, and this is how they will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. I don't know about you, but that is a crazy statement when I read it. And when you look at 1 John, he says, if you love, then you are in God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In other words, if I have received Christ and he is coming in my life, then guess what? Love will come out because Christ is present. If Jesus is in my life, then love has to happen because Jesus is here. But if I work really hard to try to be loving, to make it look like Jesus is in my life, I'll be staring at ground zero the rest of my life. But if instead I will pursue Christ and invite him to take over my life, and if Christ comes and actually dwells in me and among us, then what ends up happening is, is they will know that we are Christians by our love. So much of Christianity has not been identified by its love. And that's because so much of Christianity hasn't been Christ. But the most excellent way is this way of love. And the way we access it is through faith. We believe and we trust. 
And we realize that if this world around us that's in so, such desperate need of love, if we're going to have anything to say about it and if we're going to do anything to help it out, it's going to be because Christ lives in us. I want to end by just saying this. Spiritual maturity, spiritual maturity is not seen through how effective we are with our spiritual gifts. Spiritual maturity is not seen by how good we do according to the laws of Scripture, you know, doing this, A plus B plus whatever. Spiritual maturity is seen by love. Okay, the greatest miracle of all, whether if a person can actually be a fountain of love instead of a drain of everyone else's resources, if they can be a producer instead of a consumer, then we know that Christ is present in their life. That's when we see the miracle, the true miracle, the deep miracle. I don't care if someone, honest, if we walk outside and someone just with great faith points at our church building and picks it up and moves it like they have the force and set it down over there. Who cares? But if someone can spend their entire life not thinking about themselves but actually caring for another person, that's impressive. And there's only one person who can actually do that, and he did it in epic fashion on a cross. He did it washing feet, and he did it dying on a cross, and he's still the only person who can actually do it. I can't do it. I know that. But he can, and he says that he'll live in me and he'll produce his fruit inside of me if I will give the reins of my life over to him. And if I will let him take control and he will allow me to fulfill the design that he has for my life as I give him the reins and he will produce his love inside of me. What we need desperately is love. What we need desperately is Jesus. To make my point, um, I'm going to close with this one more time and we're going to end here with the reading of this text, first part of it. And give me, forgive me for some creative license to make the point. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not Jesus, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not Jesus, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not Jesus, I gain nothing. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He is not rude. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. He always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. Jesus never fails. And amongst the towers of our achievements and the monuments of our identities, we look and we see a great drain a big hole, a gap in our hearts and a gap in society. And it's a gap that can only be fulfilled by Jesus. We need our God. We need him to be present. We need him to be present in us and among us. Our lives are not our own. They belong to him. It's time for us to come to terms with that and to surrender, to truly surrender. Join me in prayer.